And another announcement there is a sign-up sheet in the back shelf for the men's dinner, so please sign up soon if you plan on attending so the ladies can make adequate plans. And I think what Jeff meant to say about signing up for the choir was, I'll sort of translate for him, what he meant to say was, if a musical illiterate like Pastor Delaney can sing in the choir, then anybody can. I think that's what he was trying to say. Okay, let's turn now to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. want to look, begin looking at verse 45, Matthew 27, verse 45. The context here, the Lord Jesus had been crucified, and some time had gone by while he was on the cross, and in verse 45, Matthew says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of this passage. Uh, Father, we can never, never fathom the depths of what is being revealed here, but Lord, we pray that you would just help us to understand all the transactions that took place on the cross just a little bit better. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew tells us that it was the sixth hour when there was darkness over all the land. And that sixth hour was according to Jewish calculations, and that is 12 noon according to our calculations, high noon. Now Mark tells us something Matthew didn't include here. Mark tells us that the crucifixion began at the third hour of the day, meaning nine o'clock in the morning. So three hours had passed between the time they began crucifying the Lord Jesus and to the time when the earth went dark. Three hours had passed. He had been on the cross for that time. The slow process of dying must have seemed like an eternity to him. Each minute he was in such deep agony. And at the sixth hour of the day, noontime, we're told that darkness came over the whole land. Now, this is to be taken literally. Matthew is speaking about a physical darkness that came over the world, over the earth. And we know that it was physical darkness because Luke adds a detail, that, another detail that Matthew didn't add. And Luke adds the words, and the sun was darkened. In some way, the sun was darkened. And so all three of the synoptic Gospels tell us, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that this darkness was over all the land. They all add that detail. And the word for land here is the word for earth. Tiny little word, gay, and it means uh, the earth. Sometimes, in some contexts, it can mean land, the ground. But it's the normal word for earth. Now, I don't think we could say with absolute certainty exactly how far that darkness extended out from the cross, but at least we know the region was. Maybe it was the whole earth. 
or maybe it was that area of the world. We know that in Egypt, God caused darkness in the land of Egypt. But just next door where the Jews were, uh, there was light. Deep darkness where the Egyptians were, and right on the other, right next to that boundary line, there was plentiful light for where the Jews were. So we know God can do that. And this was a physical darkness. And yet, even though it was ordinary physical darkness, there was something supernatural about this darkness. It was clearly the Lord's doing. Whether God supernaturally suspended the laws of nature for those hours on the cross, or whether he acted providentially and used natural means to bring this about. But we know it wasn't the natural means of an eclipse because it was high noon and an eclipse wouldn't work at high noon. And so this was not just a random coincidence. It wasn't a storm that happened. And we're told also that the sun was darkened, Luke says, and it's in the passive voice indicating that the subject performing that darkness was not uh, the earth itself, but it was an outside source, obviously the Lord here. The sun doesn't just go dark midday all by itself. Noon is normally the brightest time of day. And I believe that the sun was darkened supernaturally and that it was a very extensive darkness. Perhaps the whole earth, the Lord is certainly able to do that. And I say that it was supernatural because it wasn't just the fact that during that time the earth was darkened, but we're also told that in verses 51 and 52 that there was an earthquake. That wasn't a coincidence either. The Lord was on the cross, and the earth suddenly went dark. God blocked out the sun, and God shook the earth, and there was an earthquake. And we're also told that the dead were raised. So something spectacular and supernatural was taking place here. And we're also told that the centurion, when he saw the things that were happening around him, he concluded that the man on that cross was the eternal son of God. That was his conclusion when he saw that there was an earthquake, the sun went dark. And we read also in Luke chapter 23 that not only the centurion, but it says all the people that came to that site beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. In other words, everybody that went by the cross when those things were taking place were shaken by those events. And that beating the breast was a sign of, of mourning and a sign that they were shaken to the core. God knows how to get our attention. He can stop the sun from shining. He had the sun stand still for a while. He had the sun go backwards and, and uh, Ahaz's uh, sundial. These were supernatural events and certainly the Lord is able to do that. He can stop the sun from shining. He can shake the earth. He can raise the dead. And all that was happening as the Lord Jesus Christ was dying on the cross. So that the world might pay attention. And he got their attention in an effective way. 
And you know we're told that in the tribulation period, God is going to do the same sort of things again to get the world's attention. Zephaniah says the day of, the, of both the day of the Lord, he said that future prophetic day coming, he says that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So God is going to bring darkness to the world again when he shakes the heavens and the earth. In that day, that future day, not just the earth, but the heavens and the earth. And so something supernatural took place in the earth when the Son of God was crucified. It went dark. And what a contrast to when Jesus was born. When Jesus was born, it was at night, it was already dark. And what happened when the Lord was born? That dark night sky was filled with the glory of God, and the glory of God lit the sky because the light of the world had arrived. And on the cross, the light of the world was leaving, and God sent darkness upon the earth. And so this was the background, this was the setting in which Matthew and the other gospel writers give for the words of the Lord Jesus in verse 46. And tonight we want to consider the words of the Lord from the cross. In verse 46, it says, and it was about the ninth hour, so it was about the sixth hour when darkness came upon the earth. Three hours later, three more hours of suffering, the Lord Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here the Lord Jesus cried out. It's recorded here in Aramaic and then translated in, in our Bibles for us. And this was a quote from the Old Testament. And let's turn back to the Old Testament book of Psalms and Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. And notice how the psalm begins. David is writing. David begins to be writing about himself. But as David writes, it's clear that he's talking not just about himself, but prophetically, these words foreshadow a future event, and they are clearly messianic. The New Testament tells us so. And Psalm 22 begins with these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then look down to verse 6. I am the same speaker. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despise of the people. All that see me shall laugh me to scorn, and shoot out the lip, and shake or wag their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Now those words should sound familiar to us. This is what we studied last week in the gospel, when Jesus was on the cross. And it depicts exactly what men were thinking about Christ and even saying to him as he hung on the cross. And what was their attitude? 
They saw him to be a worm, worthless, weak, a reproach of men. He was despised of men. And they laughed him to scorn. And so Jesus experienced all of this scorn and laughter. And this is exactly what Matthew says actually happened on the cross. David predicted it hundreds of years prior to that, and then it happened. Matthew 27, verse 39, they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. David said that's what they would do. They'd shake their heads at him in mockery. In Matthew 27, 43, the words that the men would say, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. David predicted those very words. And these are the words spoken by the Lord Jesus on the cross. Fulfilling David's prophetic words in Psalm 22. Now back in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 47, it says, Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias or Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar, put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And the rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come and save him. Now we looked at this uh, a bit last time. And the men that were standing on the cross and heard these words of the Lord Jesus, either they didn't hear them clearly or they misunderstood what he was saying. And they said, let us see whether Elias will come. They understood Jesus to say that he was crying out to Elijah, but he didn't. His words were Eli, which is the name of God. He was crying out to his God, not Elijah. He was calling out to his heavenly father. And why was Jesus crying on the cross? For many reasons. But he was fully conscious of all the suffering that would be experienced by his own people, Israel, because they despised and rejected him and had him crucified. He knew the world was rejecting him. That's why he was on the cross. He was despised and rejected of men world, of the men of the world as well, the Gentiles, the Romans. And Jesus understood that the cross meant for his own beloved nation, Israel, some horrible consequences. In fact, Jesus wept over the city, Jerusalem, before the cross. At the end of his earthly ministry, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. And they were about to crucify him. Jesus said to them, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Jesus said, I wish I could gather you to myself, but you would not. The Jews refused to come to him. And as a result, Jesus said, Behold, your house, your nation, is left unto you desolate. And Jesus knew exactly what that meant. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus would invade Jerusalem, destroy the city, knock down the temple, not one stone left upon another, would slaughter a million Jews and scatter the rest. 
And Jesus was weeping, don't do that, come unto me. And then in Luke chapter 23, and we looked at this a few weeks back, and that parade when they marched Jesus uh, after having been beaten and whipped and scourged by the uh, Roman soldiers, they paraded him through the town, outside the city gates, and up to Golgotha. And there were some women along the parade route when they saw how beaten and bruised and bleeding and wounded Jesus was. They were weeping for him. And you remember what Jesus said to those women? He said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, and the which they shall say, blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps that never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus knew the horrors of judgment that would fall upon the nation of Israel, not just in the immediate, the next generation in 70 AD, but in that future tribulation period. Jesus understood that, in a sense, history was repeating itself. The Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the city, demolished the first temple, and dispersed thousands of them and took them into captivity. And now it was being repeated several hundred, several centuries later by the Romans. They did exactly the same thing, or they would be doing it in 70 AD. Jesus understood the times of the Gentiles. That time period, that prophetic period in human history when, which began with the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, and it won't end until the second coming of Jesus Christ. And all during that time period, which includes the present, by the way, Jerusalem will be trampled under the feet of Gentiles. And Israel and Jewish people will suffer great persecution as a result. Not just the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Germans, and finally the Antichrist. Horrible judgment will fall upon the Jews. And that's why Jesus was crying out to his father for his own people. Jesus knew that that glorious messianic kingdom, that golden age of the prophets that he offered unto them, but Israel rejected, would be postponed for several thousand years. And so Jesus grieved over the suffering that he knew would result from the fact that his own people had him crucified. But this pathetic cry of Jesus to his father was much more than that. It was exceedingly personal for the Lord Jesus. He was crying out because he was the Son of God. And he was crying out in agony because the Father forsook him on the cross. This is something that we could never fully fathom. Forsake means to leave behind, to abandon, to desert. And that's what the Father did to the Son on the cross of Calvary. He abandoned his own Son. The eternal Son of God never experienced anything like this before. 
for all the eternal ages, the Son of God and God the Father had enjoyed perfect, sweet, uninterrupted fellowship and communion with each other and all the members of the Godhead. That's all the eternal Son had ever known was that sweet, uninterrupted communion with the Father. And even when he became a man, all throughout his earthly ministry, he had nothing but uninterrupted fellowship and sweetness in his relationship to the Father. And when his father had to turn his back on his son, that was infinitely worse than any physical suffering he endured on the cross. And so this cry of the son, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is the sort of cry from one who had found all his glory, all his joy, all his delight in his relationship to the father. And now it was broken on the cross. And that was sheer agony for the son of God. Now, David adds a detail not mentioned by Matthew in Psalm 22 and verse 1 when David says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He adds, Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Now, here again, this is messianic. And David states that on the cross, the Lord Jesus was experiencing this distance from his father, that he was far from helping him. He was far away, and he was ignoring the suffering and the roaring, or literally the groaning of Christ on the cross. That close fellowship and relationship was now distant. And this phrase simply expands the depth of the abandonment that Jesus felt on the cross. Unimaginable to us. Jesus groaned in anguish on the cross because he fully understood the spiritual transaction that was about to happen in his death. He was suffering, but he hadn't yet died. He hadn't yet given up the ghost. And Jesus understood what the prophets in the Old Testament understood. Isaiah said of the Messiah as he was on the cross, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now imagine that. Here was the sinless, spotless Son of God who hated sin to the degree of infinity and there on the cross, the Father laid on him the iniquity of the whole world, every sin of every human being in every generation. And it all fell on the Lord Jesus on the cross. And Peter wrote of him, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. He bore every one of them. All the guilt, all the shame, all the penalty, he bore it in full. And Paul writes in the book of Galatians in chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Unbelievable. That on the cross, the father cursed his son. 
by putting the sins of all the world upon him. He was made a curse. God made him a curse for us. And this is what made the cross so horrifying to the Lord Jesus. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't his back that had been torn to shreds. It wasn't the physical suffering. It wasn't being nailed to the cross and having all his body weight hang down on it and his inability to breathe. As painful as that was, what was really unbelievably painful for the Lord Jesus was knowing that his father would judicially turn his back upon him, forsaken by God. Now, this is agonizing for the father, too. The father sacrificed his son. The father knew exactly what the son was going to experience. And just like any father, he, he was horrified by what his son had to experience. And for the spirit as well. And yet, in spite of this, we read, Paul tells us, that the father spared not his son. All that agony, all that suffering, all that torture, all those sins laid upon his son. And the father, most fathers would say, I can't bear it. I'm going to rescue him somehow from that suffering. But surprisingly, we read in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was righteous for Jesus to die as the penalty for sin because he laid down his own life. And turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the most stunning verses in all of the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And I'll just fill in the pronouns here to help us follow through with the thought. Verse 21. For he the Father hath made him the Son to be sin for us, for the whole world. So the Father, in some way, made the Son sin. Doesn't mean he was sinful. He was holy. We're told here that he knew no sin. Christ knew no sin. But in some way, when the sins of all the world were laid upon him, he became sin. He became that sin sacrifice. And the Father was unable to look upon him. Habakkuk tells us that the eyes of God are so holy it cannot look upon sin. And so the father had to turn his face away from his own son as he became sin for us. Beyond our capacity to fully comprehend. Something so horrific and dreadful. So deep and dark and mysterious. Something we can only appreciate on a very superficial level, but the Lord Jesus experienced the full depth of it all. That Jesus was separated from his Father for that time. On the cross. Something he had never experienced before, forsaken by God. He became sin. He became a curse for us. And their fellowship was broken. This was crushing for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the Father in the Spirit. And this is why the sun stopped shining. And this is why God shook the earth. And this is why the veil in the temple was rent in two. 
The powers of darkness were about to be defeated by what Jesus did on the cross. And sin was about to be defeated once and for all. And Satan was about to be defeated. And Satan's world system was about to be crucified along with the Lord Jesus. And death would be conquered once and for all. And for all of that to happen, it required the death of Jesus Christ. And all this transpired that moment that Jesus died on the cross. This monumental, this transformational victory over all the enemies of God could come about only because of the deepest, darkest stain in world history. When the Son was despised and rejected of men and crucified to death, tortured to death. The world chose to extinguish the light of the world. And we read in Acts chapter 2 that evil men took him and by wicked hands have crucified and slain God's beloved son. The world chose to crucify him. And Israel rejected their own Messiah. They chanted, let him be crucified. John says he came to his own and his own received him not. And Satan thought he had him. Satan was described in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 as that serpent that would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman that would come, the Messiah. But what Satan didn't know is that even though he would wound the heel and bring about the death of the Messiah, as he bit into Messiah's heel, his heel would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent would be defeated at the cross. And Isaiah tells us also that it affected the father. The father made his son an offering for sin. It says that in Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul, his life, an offering for sin. Now, it didn't please the father in the sense that he got some kind of pleasure out of the death of his son. But it pleased his holiness. It pleased his justice that the sins of the world were being taken care of once and for all and forever. And it was only through death that life could prevail. And it was only through darkness that light would conquer. And then go back in your New Testament, turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke adds some more detail that Matthew omitted. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. Now just read, let's start in verse 45. So we put this in the context of Matthew 27, verse 45. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. So it's the time, same time frame, the sun was darkened. And verse 46, and when Jesus cried with a loud voice, all of the synoptics say when Jesus spoke those words on the cross, he cried them out with a loud voice and they were addressed to the Father. And here he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. 
And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So Luke tells us that it was with a loud voice he spoke these words. Mark tells us that Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up the ghost. So they all tell us that he cried out with with a loud voice. But only Luke tells us what that voice was saying. And Luke gives us his actual words. And what he cried out after saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Then he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Now note that these words were addressed to the Father. That's significant. Jesus had suffered on the cross three hours of darkness and even three hours before that as they prepared him to, uh, to be crucified. And now Jesus cries out to his Father. And he commends his spirit unto his Father. And this word commends means to place his spirit before the Father or into the Father's hands. He's taking his life and he's saying, Here, Abba, Father. Now this also came from another Messianic psalm. Keep one hand there in Luke and turn to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. And verse 5. Here another psalm of David, clearly a Messianic psalm. And in verse 5, David writes of the Messiah, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So here another psalm, David begins to speak about himself and then his words take on a messianic meaning looking uh, forward into the future and David writes, he's writing in this psalm of the suffering of a righteous man who is in need of God's deliverance. So he was initially writing about himself and his enemies seemed impossible to defeat and so David commits his life into God's hands. And he commits his situation, his suffering, and the outcome of this situation into the very capable hands of God. And then notice what he says in verse 15. My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. So David had an immediate battle in mind when he wrote these words of himself but they take on a messianic meaning. They they foreshadow something that would happen in the life of David's greater son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in fact, we have the very words of David crying, cried out by the Lord on the cross when he committed his life, his spirit, into the hands of his father. And so these were the final words of Jesus on the cross, according to the synoptic gospels. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then when it was time to die, he committed his life, his spirit into the hands of his father with one last shriek. John tells us one word 
that the synoptics omitted. But it's a, an important word we'll look at next time. One more word the Lord Jesus had to say from the cross. To Telestai. And that one word is translated by three English words. It is finished. He died in the job of pro providing redemption and paying the penalty of the sins of the world was finished when he died. But there's one more point I'd like to make about the death of Christ as he addressed his father on the cross. And this is not something that we see in the Gospels, but we see in the Old Testament. <clears throat> We're all familiar with the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for us. And we're thankful for that. Our salvation is based upon it. And we know that from there are countless scriptures that tell us Christ died for us. He died for you. He died for sinners. But in another sense, the son died for his father. And here he is speaking the final words on the cross, and he addresses these words as he's about to hand his life over to his father. And he acknowledges that his death was for his father. Turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. And verse 2. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. And if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle. And notice this, before the Lord. So the book of Leviticus which is symbolic and has so many shadows and types that look ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, begins by speaking about a burnt offering and that this offering was to be offered unto the Lord, period. And in verse 5, it's described as a sweet savor, a sweet smell unto the Father. So when the Son died on the cross... There was a sense in which there was a sweetness to the Father in this. And it pleased the Father. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ died foreshadowing, foreshadowed by the burnt offering. And we read in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 9, that the burnt offering was to be placed, and here's where we get the words to that song, is you're all on the altar. The burnt offering was to be placed on the altar. And it was to be burnt entirely. There was nothing left over for the priest. There was nothing left over for the, uh, for the offerer, as was the case in many other sacrifices. But this offering was to be burnt totally until it completely turned to ashes. And it was placed on the altar. And it's a picture of Jesus dying from the Father's perspective. What the Father saw when his son died on the cross. Remember, Jesus came to do his Father's will. In Hebrews chapter 10, we have the words of the Messiah again. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus said, when he came, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. And he said that repeatedly in the book of John. And then Paul picks up this thought in Philippians chapter 2 and says that Christ came and he humbled himself and he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He was obedient to the will of his father because the father sent him to die. And Jesus was willing to die in order to carry out the will of his father. And so this burnt offering pictures Christ. It pictures his devotion to the Father's will, even if it meant death, torture and death. He was willing to die to carry out the will of his Father. And even if nobody ever got saved from his work on the cross, it would have been worth the price Because it was a demonstration of the son's love for his father and his devotion to his father's will, no matter what, no matter what the cost. And then turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 31. Sometimes we read over these expressions in the Gospels without thinking them through, but in verse 31, the Lord Jesus says, But that the world may know that I love the Father. Now here, the Lord Jesus is talking about why he's leaving his disciples, why he's going to be crucified and die. And he says here, that or so that the world may know that I love the Father. As the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. He was obedient unto his Father's will to be tortured to death on the cross. And that was an expression of his love and devotion to the Father. And he wanted the whole world to know, not just that the Son loves the world or the Father loves the world, but he wants the whole world to know by looking at the cross that the eternal Son of God loves his Father. And then turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In verse 25. Jesus died for his father. Jesus died to justify his father. Look in verse 25. Whom God the father. He's talking about Christ in verse 24. Whom God the Father hath set forth to be a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies divine justice. That's what propitiation means, to satisfy, to satisfy justice. So the Father set forth in a public demonstration his Son to be that, satisfa- to be that sacrifice that satisfied divine wrath and divine justice. Through faith in his blood, and to declare his righteousness. So the death of Jesus Christ was a declaration that the Father is righteous. For the remission, and in what way is he declared righteous? For the remission of sins that are past. Because God saved Abraham by faith. And God saved Noah by faith. And God saved many people in the Old Testament by faith. 
And all through the Old Testament, there was this nagging thought in the back of all the minds of the Jews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And yet God the judge declares righteous men that he knows are guilty. That doesn't sound like a righteous judge. But eventually the father set forth his son to declare to the whole world how much his son loves the father. That he was willing to die to pay the penalty of all the sins that are past and all the sins that are present and yet to be committed in the future. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he, God the Father, might be just and righteous and at the same time the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And so that was the controversy in the minds of men. How can God be a just judge, a righteous judge, and declare men that he knows are guilty to be not guilty? Because Jesus paid the price of the sins of the whole world. And so the son died for the father. The son came to do the will of his father. And when the father saw the son dying on the cross... Yes, in one sense, the father would have grieved at the suffering of his own son. What father wouldn't? But at the same time, the father saw in that an infinite love that his son has for, the, for his father in doing his will, regardless of the price. And there on the cross, the son displayed for the whole world to see that justice had been satisfied. The penalty had been paid in full. And the father's wrath and curse fell on the son instead of me and you. The father's heart was broken and torn. On the one hand, the father wanted to save lost sinners. On the other hand, his justice said the soul that sinned must die. And Jesus settled that issue in his father's heart by being that propitiation. And that's why Jesus said in his last breath, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He was handing over his life to his father. He laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. He laid it down of his own free will. He turned his life over to the father. He allowed the Father to unload all of the wrath that needed to be expressed against sin. He, un he allowed himself to become the curse that sin deserves. He allowed himself to be made sin and pay the penalty in full so that the Father could be justified in the eyes of men and angels for all eternity as a holy and righteous judge who always does what's right. And Jesus brought glory to his Father in this way. Yes, Jesus died for us, but he also died for his Father. And when he said that, and we'll look at these words next week, he said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost and died. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the revelation of the torture and murder and suffering and death of your son. And Father, we know that 
It was right in your sight. It was righteous. It was an expression of your love for the world. It was an expression of the Son's love for the Father. And Father, we thank you that, that you love the world in such a way that you were willing to suffer and sacrifice the loss of your Son. And we thank you that the Lord Jesus, your Son, was willing to lay down his life for us that we might be forgiven of sins that we could never forgive have forgiven through our own efforts. But we thank you for your marvelous grace. We thank you, Lord, that you sacrificed and put your all on the altar in the person of Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you for so great salvation. Help us to walk worthy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.